the king is alive, the king is here, and the king is with each one of us. Uh, this morning, it's my great privilege. Uh, I don't know whether I should call a guest speaker or one of our family members who is with us this morning. This morning, we have in our midst Pastor Jacob Cherian and uh, Sister Melody Cherian. Thank you so much, Sister Melody, for accompanying Pastor Jacob. And Dr. Jacob Cherian was my teacher, so I need to be very careful. I was a student, uh, but I can also be free with him because he's my friend. So he's both my teacher as well as my friend. And it's a great privilege um, to have him as my teacher. We do PhD in India so that we can go to America. He did PhD in Princeton to come back to India. You know, I'm so grateful to him because he chose to come back to India. I was able to study uh, under him. In the year 2006, he returned from the States after completing his PhD in Princeton University. And if at all he wanted to stay in America, you know, I don't, we don't have to even think about that. Not the number of opportunities he must have had, but he chose to come back. Because he came back, I'm definitely I'm privileged because for the kind of readings he has introduced me, if I'm here today, what I am, it's because you know I owe it to him in a great, great measure. And I'm grateful to him. He's, uh, he's a great scholar. And when you are thinking about great scholar, Sometimes you think he'll give you some special knowledge. No. You know, sometimes Christians are looking for some esoteric knowledge, something special. He will only take the Bible and he'll teach us how to read the Bible. And all that we need is in the word of God. And he has invested so much in my life, you know, to get back to the word of God and to see what is there in the word of God. He did his MTH. Again, from a Pauline letter, if I remember correctly, it's from First Thessalonians, how God is a nursing mother, how God takes care of us. And he did his PhD from the book of Corinthians, again, a Pauline letter, to say how generous is our God and why Christians are generous. Uh, that is his, uh, his PhD. And if you're not only is a Pauline scholar and being a friend, I can tell that he's a look and practitioner. You know, we have Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and look and practitioner. What do I mean by look and practitioner? You have chapter 15, Luke chapter 15. You have prodigal son. You have, you know, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I hope you are able to get what is meant by look and practitioner. He's the one who cannot sit quiet if I see somebody suffering, somebody is in pain. He will not sit quiet. Uh, that's what happens. That's how the gospel transforms us. And this morning, you know, I can go on talking about him. He's a writer. He writes books, only thing he doesn't have time because so many needs. When there are so many needs, he keeps his books aside and he starts attending to the other needs.
been a great blessing in my life. This morning, I would humbly request all of us to just keep our eyes attentive, ears attentive to the word of God. And if you can make a note, please write, and you will definitely be blessed. I don't want to take much of his time. Over to Dr. Jacob Cherry. I'm scared when people introduce me because sometimes they may say things that even my wife will not recognize. Um, Pastor Abraham, I have still to write one book. I have not uh, contributed to some writings. But it's been a long time and I've been waiting to be with you here in this place because we were online for such a long time. When did we start meeting here? February. And uh, it's so good to see so many of you who I am familiar with and I know. Uh, I get to have a lot of interaction with Pastor Abraham, Pastor Prem. Just a couple of days ago we met, spent time together. And uh, so it's good to see so many of you familiar faces. And for others who uh, I have not met, we have not met. It's great to see you here. Uh, Shoba, it's good to see you. Yeah. This uh, and uh, this uh, beautiful day God has given to us. You didn't tell me how much time do I have. That's dangerous to the Pentecostal preachers. You don't tell them. I want to speak about what I call the amazing good news. We are in Amazing Grace Church. So let me tell you the amazing good news. That's the first part of the topic. Uh, and the second part is going to be a little problematic for some of us. Okay, so I'll come to that slowly. I want to talk about fairness. Is God fair? I'm not talking about color like me, but is God fair? Okay, I'm going to give you a little provocative title. How do we define fairness? How do we define fairness? All of us growing up, we develop our own sense of fairness. So if there are two children in the family and when mommy comes with sweets, we are watching very carefully. And if our brother or sister gets more than us, mm, that's not fair. So we develop from childhood a sense of fairness. And then we grow up in societies. We talk about there has to be fairness, there has to be justice, etc., etc. And our sense of fairness, or what is fair, develops. So that very often in our societies we have codified our ideas of justice and fairness 
So we have the image of Lady Justice. And what is she holding in her hand? A balance, a weighing scale. Yeah, so there has to be fairness is what we say. But remember one thing. We all grew up in our societies and our cultures and our families and our sense of fairness is not the same as the time goes by. Let's say 200 years ago, you were living as a Christian in white America and you had African slaves. And it was quite fair in your society and in your church to treat them in a certain way. Nobody would say it's not fair. You would come and sing Amazing Grace in church. But when you went back home and treated your African slaves, you dealt with them differently. And it was fair in that culture. So our sense of fairness is all messed up is what I want to say. Even though we think our sense of fairness is right. And we have in India, we would say, in my humble opinion, I am a joke. You know, I said this. Um, Sometimes we are not so humble, but anyway, we say that in my humble opinion. How do we understand fairness? But one thing is for sure, life is brutally unfair. I'm talking about life right now. Life is very, very unfair. As a pastor, sometimes we deal with people and sometimes people feel free to tell their struggles to pastors. And sometimes they say, Pastor, I have not shared with anybody. They talk about their pain and their struggle. Life is unrelenting pain sometimes. That's how life is. Some of us are born in privileged circumstances and others are born in refugee camps. Some of us are born with responsible parents who were very nice to us, gave us good education, and others are born without parents to care for them. Sometimes we will see innocent people victimized, suffer, innocent, killed, and the wicked prosper and get away with it. That's how life is. None of us deserves the plenty and the benefits we have. But neither do those who are suffering deserve it. In a country like India, do you know what is a poverty line in India? What is considered poverty in India? If you earn, how much is considered poverty? Any guess? About 170 or 80 rupees per day. That's just about 5,000 rupees. So if you're earning more than 5,000 rupees, then you're not poor. Okay? Uh, some of us find it difficult to believe that. Because we earn much more and still we think we don't have enough. That's poverty line in India. So you can imagine how many millions in India don't even have that basic amount to live with. Now, that is... The reality, painful reality. Poverty, pain, disease, suffering. Soon after this service, I'm going to 
Karunashraya, and you, some of you know what that is. It's a hospice for those who are dying of cancer to visit a dear, dear brother who is dying of cancer, 65, lung cancer, um, but he smoked all his life. So you may say he got what he was coming, right? But last week, in one of our churches, a lady who never smoked died of lung cancer and she was only 36. Life and believers, okay, all of these. Sometimes we think as a believer we'll somehow escape some of these tough things that can happen to people. Tragedies happen at the same rate to believers and those who believe differently, okay? So, just by our believing, we cannot escape some of these painful realities in life. Life is unfair. Now, now, this is where the difficult part comes, theologically, for those of us who believe in God. If you extrapolate from that reality that life is unfair, to say that somehow God is unfair, then you have made one logical blunder. What is that? You have just assumed that everything that happens, God is controlling that. Don't we like to say God is in control? Do we say that? Sounds nice. But is it true? Because if God is controlling everything, then, then okay, maybe we can then say God is unfair. But that's a different message. I am not going into that part of that message. How do we deal with the unfairness of life? I'm not talking about that today. I want to say, is this God whom we have worshipped today, is he fair? Is he unfair? Now, one thing you just need to realize that sometimes, you know, when Christians are dealing with friends who ask questions, hard questions about God, they become like the friends of Job. You remember the friends of Job? What was their job? They took upon themselves the job to defend God. So several chapters in, in that book, which is a big book, 42 chapters, they decide to defend God. Unless you read the whole book, some of us who have just read one or two verses, we think, oh, Job said, you know, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's only in chapter 2. That's only in the beginning. Please read the whole book. Job has a lot of questions to God. In one of those places, it seems like he's saying, God, you know what? I am featherweight, you are heavyweight. It's not fair. You come down to my size, then let's put on boxing gloves. That's what Job is asking God. He's, he's not saying, God, you are so nice through the book. Please read the whole book. He has questions of God and God has no problem with Job. But those three friends who tried to defend God, what did God say at the end? I'm really mad with you fellows. You better ask my friend Job to pray for you. Otherwise you are in trouble. So let's not fall into this trap of trying to defend God. We don't have to. However, still the question remains. Who is this God? How do we get reliable, 
knowledge about God. So that our view of God is reliable. It's, it's, it's something that we can depend upon. As we sang that song, that he's a rock, he's a chattan. Uh, where do we get that from? Definitely not, by the way, many times I have done, you have done, we have done, is a use of random Bible verses from here and there. You know, we are very good with doing that, aren't we? Pastors also can do that. Okay, Somebody said, I can do all things with a Bible verse taken out of context. So that's not the way we are going to understand what God is like. One verse here. What about this verse, Pastor? What about this verse, Pastor? No, that's not the way to get a reliable idea of who this God is. Then where do we get our reliable knowledge? Very simple. Not difficult. John chapter 1 verse 18 gives us the answer. There's one place we get the answer. And what does he say? John 1 18. Anyone wants to read it? John 180. One minute. Hello. John says no one has seen God. Is that true? Did Isaiah see God? Isaiah chapter 6. It says so. I saw the Lord. Correct. Did Moses see God? Yeah, in a sense. But John says no. No one has seen God. Wait a minute. Let's read on. Okay, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, what he's saying is, yeah, Isaiah saw God, yeah, Moses, yeah, but no one has seen God. No one knows God, no one has seen God the way Jesus has seen him. No one. And what Jesus now reveals to us is reliable information about God. That is it. What Jesus reveals about God is now the final way to understand. And therefore, it's very, very important that we understand Jesus so that then we can understand God and read the whole three-fourths of your Bible, which is the what we call the Old Testament. To understand, we need to read through Jesus, you know. And that takes a skill. It's not, it's not a science as much as, as an art. You have to learn how to do that, reading scripture through Jesus. Now, how did Jesus therefore reveal himself? First of all, through his person, who he was. He was God in flesh, John will say, right? And through his teachings, but also through his life what he said, how he related with people, how he forgave his enemies, and how he gave up his life, how he became a servant. That is what God is. God is a servant. God is a servant. That's what Philippians 2 will say. And through his life, and then finally through his death, and his resurrection, and then sending through the Spirit. That's how we know God. And one of the things Jesus did which the Gospels have given to us, which is one of the greatest gifts we have to understand God and the kingdom, is Jesus taught in parables. What is a parable? 
Parable is something that is, you know, English word parabole. Para is beside. That's why you have parallelogram. Okay? And thrown beside. Something you put beside to kind of guess what it is. For example, you want to know the length of something. You put a scale beside it. You know, okay, it's about one feet or something like that. A parable is something that is a story in different forms. There are different types of parables. And looking at them, you know what God is like. And the reason Jesus spoke in parables was for those who want to know, it is not going to be rocket science. You don't have to be having a very high IQ to understand God. If you can just have a desire to know and you're open to be challenged. And so the parables of Jesus, many of them were such that just brought, pulled you in. And you're listening to the story and you don't know suddenly the story is about you. It's about you. Remember one of the best parables in the Old Testament? David, when he had chosen to be the worst rascal he could be. And Nathan the prophet comes and he starts telling a story. And David didn't realize what was happening. You know, he's like this fish which is pulled in. And he said, who's that man? That man must be killed. You know the story? You can read for yourself and finally the man says, you are that man. The parables have the potential to, if we listen, it will pull us in and it will turn us around. Can actually, it has a potential to change our life completely. That's the power of the parables. So today, I'm going to pick up two parables, but I, because... I want to do it quickly in one message. I'm going to go fast over that. But still I'm going to read the whole parables for you. And one I'm going to pick up from Luke. Parable he mentioned. And I'm going to pick up one parable. You may not have been thinking about it for a while. From the gospel of Matthew. So the first one we shall start with is in Luke 15. Yes. The well-known parable. Are you there? Are you in Luke 15? One of the things I remind my students is, when you read the Bible, read the Bible, don't read verses. What does that mean? Don't read verses. There were no verses in the, in the beginning, right? Luke does not know your verses. He does not know Luke 15. <laughs> John does not know John 3.16. <laughs> he doesn't know. Because the chapter divisions came a thousand years later after the New Testament was written. And the worst divisions came in even a few hundred years later. So they're about, just about 500 years old. Nobody knows these verses. Sometimes the problem is these verses have divided a whole sentence into three, four verses. So when you're reading one verse, you could be only reading one fourth of a sentence in the original. So that's why simple, simple thing. Read the Bible. Don't read verses and chapters. I know it's there. It helps us so that we all got to the same place. But there are no chapter divisions. So look at chapter 15 and don't forget there was chapter 14 before that. And so see the connection between the last phrase of 14 and 15. You may never have seen that. What does it say? The last phrase of 14. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear now. Forget about that space in your Bible and that chapter number. Jesus says, come on, those who have ears to hear, let them hear now. Who comes to hear? Tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear him. So what does it show? 
They are the ones who have ears. The bad people have ears to hear the gospel. Let me tell you that. But, <laughs> verse 2, but, you know, when somebody is, you are talking with somebody, they will, you will say something, they will say, yeah, 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 but, <laughs> which means, no, you are wrong. I don't care. But, who has a problem now? Who are Pharisees? Pharisees were very religious. They were not bad people. They were not terrible sinners. Not all of them. But they were following a certain way of understanding of spirituality. They were very serious with them. I mean, tithe means they will give tithe of everything. Some years ago, I remember seeing in a church tithe. It was 246 rupees. Wonderful, no? That means at that, this is many years ago, the salary must have been 2,460. So 246 is the, what the dear brother gave, not 250, because then it will not be tight. I mean, that is how serious some of us can be. And then, of course, husbands and wife will argue, do we give tight before tax or after tax? Big difference, isn't it? On gross salary or net salary? Religious people do that. And then it says the teachers of the law. What did they do? Muttered and said this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So who has a problem with Jesus? The religious people have a problem. Not the sinful people. And so the verse 3 says then. Jesus told them this parable. Jesus has to tell parables to correct whom? Not the tax collectors and sinners. They have no problem with Jesus. It is the religious people like you and me who get ready on Sunday morning and big Bibles we come to church. Because others are sleeping after a long Saturday night. And some of times God's people like us, we don't understand God. We have a warped understanding of God. So Jesus says, okay. He doesn't dismiss them. He said, okay, I'll tell you some stories. And he tells them the first, Luke has put three parables together. Remember? And these parables, what's the first parable? Parable of the? Okay, just, just remind yourself, these titles also that we have, were not given by Luke, were not given by Jesus. Jesus told a parable. He didn't say this is the parable of the lost sheep. But sometimes that's where, you know, culture, practice can be good sometimes. Not all cultural practices are bad. But we can also challenge sometimes some of our cultural practices. One of them is our tradition of these titles. We are used to these titles. They are not necessarily bad. They are not necessarily good. So what is this parable about? It's not about the lost sheep for sure. Because remember the purpose. Jesus wants to correct their image about God. He said, let me tell you what God is like. He's like this shepherd who leaves 99 sheep in the wilderness. That's risky. You could lose some more. He could have said, listen, I have 99. I better be with them only. Otherwise, I may lose one more. I can't go after that one sheep. But the shepherd goes seeking. This is not the parable of the lost sheep. It's a parable about a seeking shepherd. Because God 
just like that shepherd. You see that? He's correcting the view of God. Secondly, you have a parable which we have called the parable of the lost coin. I know my Bible also has got that printed in. That's, that's not inspired, okay, just to know. Some, everything in your Bible, especially these things are not inspired. God did not put it there. We, we have done it. Some of them are okay. It's not a parable of a coin, it's a parable of a woman who searches till she finds. God is like the woman. And then you have a parable which we have been calling the parable of the prodigal son, lost son. That's my title here in this Bible. But the first line tells you there was a man who had two sons. Why do we call it parable of one son then? Actually, it's about a man who had two sons. So it's not a parable about the sons even. It's about a man. And the word prodigal, what does it mean? This parable in Tamil, what is it called? Ketta Kumaran. Ketta Kumaran. Ketta means kind of bad fellow. Useless fellow. Malayalam, Budiyanaya Putra. Hindi, Ulau Putra. Means blows up your money. Right? What's the meaning of prodigal? That's not what prodigal means. The English word prodigal. By the way, the word prodigal is not there anywhere in the text. It's traditionally given. What's the meaning of the word prodigal? It's a nice word actually. Huh? What does it mean? Prodigal. Hey, feel free to answer. You know, some of the best disciples of Jesus answered. They were not right always, but they answered. Peter loved to answer and think about it after he spoke. That's fine. That's the way to grow. So what does prodigal mean? Yeah, that is important. See, the word prodigal comes from the Latin prodigium. That is something that is extraordinary or awe-inspiring, causing amazement, wonder. Isn't that what we call a child who is very gifted? What do we call that child? A prodigy. You're amazed. Wow, this little child can play the piano like this? Wow. It's a prodigy. Prodigal does not mean bad. Prodigal means too much. Extravagant. That's what prodigal means. Now, if you go, you get your monthly salary and you go to a five star and blow it up in one shot. That's called extravagant in a stupid way. That is being prodigal, yes, in a bad way. But the story is not about a prodigal son. It's about a prodigal father who lavishes his grace on undeserving rascal like that boy. Now, just to save on time, I said I will read. Maybe I should read. Pastor, give me a signal when I should stop. Eh? Or you can give me a signal, start yawning or something. Um, let, let us just read this parable. They are too beautiful not to miss. So Sunday morning, let's just enjoy ourselves. Read scripture. The parable of the lost son. I'm going to read it for you. You are welcome to follow with me. And I'll try to read it a little dramatically. Luke 15 verse 11. There was a man who had, read along with me, two sons. The younger one said to his father, 
father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild, stupid living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Remember, pigs are an unclean animal to Jewish people. For a Jewish boy, this is, is never even imagined this. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's have biryani and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found so they began to celebrate. If this is the story of the prodigal son, the story is over. But this is like walking out of a movie or a story when the best part is coming still. Part two. This is not prodigal son story. Maybe if you want to think of it in some ways, both are prodigals. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Jesus said that there are two sons. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Hmm. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on in my house. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father <laughs> has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother jumped for joy. He became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Please note in the first part of the story, the father doesn't say a word to the other son. Not one word. Even when the, the story, the son says something to him, he doesn't listen to him. He speaks to the servants. Now he goes to plead with him. But he answered his father, how? Appa? No. Angrily, look! All these years I have been slaving for you. I'm your slave. And you never and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, meaning no relation of mine, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, such a rascal he is, he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, he doesn't say my slave, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The story is not over. Do you realize that all this talk is happening outside and we don't know whether this boy came in or not. The story is very simple. There are two groups of people. These two sons represent two groups of people before Jesus. And Jesus is challenging which group? The second son. And to say that, listen, you are asking me to be fair. I am not unfair. I am not unfair. Everything I have is yours. I am not unfair. But don't ask me to be fair. Because this father is not fair. He is compassionate. He is compassionate. That is what it says. He had compassion on him. This is about a compassionate father. Not about a prodigal son. There was a one of the greatest Bible scholars ever. who David Noel Friedman. David Noel Friedman. Who came from a Jewish background, became a Christian and then he studied the scriptures. Probably no, very, very few people could come to that level of his knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. All the Hebrew writings not, and including Hebrew writings which are not in our Bible. He was a scholar of that. And one day somebody asked him, Dr. Friedman, if you were to summarize all of the Hebrew scriptures in a nutshell, what would you say it is? Do you know what he said? Dr. Friedman said, there is forgiveness. Can you believe that? That is the summary of the whole Old Testament. Some of us read the Old Testament, we are kind of scared and we have all kinds of questions. That will not be a summary. But here is someone who knows the Old Testament better than any of us would ever know. And one of the psalmists, we don't even have a name for him in Psalm 130. Verse 3 and 4. Psalm 133 and 4. The psalmist says, O Lord, if you kept a record of my sin, who can stand? In other words, if you are fair, none of us can come anywhere close to you. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, we reverentially fear you and serve you. Wow. That is the story of the Bible. God is not fair. That's my title today. The good news. The amazing good news is God is not fair. God is not unfair. But God is not fair. One of my favorite stories that come out of the many years ago in the French Revolution, Victor Hugo, a French writer, he wrote a big book called Les Miserables. Okay, and that has been formed into movies and stories. If you're in school, maybe you heard a story like the Bishop's Candlesticks. You heard of that story? Um, and, one, and, and this story has been made into many movie adaptations. And my favorite one is in, from the 1998 uh, place where Liam Neeson is 
the main actor. There are two main actors actually in this story. It's a beautiful story. It comes out of the French Revolution time. And Jean Valjean, he is an escaped convict. You know, he was put into prison because he stole one loaf of bread for his sister's hungry children. And he was put into prison for 20 years. So you can imagine the kind of unfairness involved in that. And so when he came out in patrol, uh, parole after uh, 20 years, he jumped patrol, parole. He jumped it and he didn't go back. Now that is breaking the law of that time. And so there's a second character, very interesting character, Inspector Javert. He is one who believes in following the law, rules, justice. And according to the law of that time, you cannot jump parole. So he follows him for years and years. But in this story, Jean Valjean has an unexpected encounter one day with a bishop. And that bishop's act of grace to him, and you need to see the story for that, Les Miserables. You can go on YouTube, you can see these video clips. Changes him. His act of grace changes him completely. He becomes a complete change man. And he lives his life now for serving others. But you see, he is still an escaped convict. So this inspector is following him, following him at the end of the story. Long story, a lot of things happening, French Revolution, so many things. Finally, Inspector Javier catches him. That's the end of the story. He catches him. But he is conflicted because he has seen this man being gracious to him. At one point, he could have killed him, but he doesn't. So now he does not know what to do. He puts, uh, what do you call it, hand, handcuffs on him. But then he says something. He says, it is a pity that the rules don't allow me to be merciful. It's a pity the rules don't allow me to be merciful. And then he does something. I'm not going to tell you what. Because it may spoil the story. It will be a spoiler for some of you who want to watch that movie or read about that. Does God play by the rules that we think he should play by? Or is God like Inspector Javier that he is so caught up with the rules that he cannot be merciful? Paul will say, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God takes this justice on himself. That is the good news. So that he can be merciful. Sometimes we think of God's character. There was a Greek God called Janus. That's how we get the word January. January is the first month because it looks back at the previous year and looks towards the second. So that's the Greek god Janus. Two heads. Does God have two natures? One is he's holy. The other is he's loving. Does God have two natures? He's just and he's merciful. I don't think so. God has only one nature. God is love. But his love is a just God is merciful, but his mercy is a holy mercy. That's 
quickly the second parable. And this is a parable you may not have read for a while. It's in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. Have you seen this parable recently? If not, let's read it. It's an interesting parable. By the way, just to again remind you about this chapters and headings, since I have taken a little extra time, let me explain something interesting here. Look at the last verse before Matthew 20 begins. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Look at verse 16. Chapter 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now, do you notice that? This is like a frame to this parable. Now, according to the best of gospel scholarship, the gospel of Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke used that gospel to frame their gospels. Use the framework, added things. That's how uh, the best of gospel scholarship thinks. Now, just to let you know, Mark chapter 10, if you read, you will find Matthew 19 and 20 following most of the same uh, episodes in the same order. But when it comes to this passage, Matthew stops and he inserts this parable. So this parable is not found anywhere else. It's only found in Matthew. That was just in passing a little, uh, what should you say, scholarly insight. But um, here you have an interesting parable. This parable is a troubling parable. If you are an HR person, don't ever talk about this parable to your company. This parable is going to make us uncomfortable. Including God's people. By the way, this parable was mostly given to God's people. You know, Jesus will come to comfort us when we are in pain. But sometimes when we are too comfortable, he will come to make us uncomfortable. That's how Jesus was. Because he knows what is good for us. And so now we have this parable. Let's read it. It's beautiful. You may not have read it for a while. For the kingdom of heaven, Matthew likes to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. And uh, Mark and Luke and all will use kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven is not heaven. It's just talking about God's reign that Jesus says has started with his coming. The kingdom of God started when Jesus came. We are not going to heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come, started, inaugurated. And when Jesus comes again, it will be consummated on this earth. That's what the gospels teach. So kingdom of heaven means God, a kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Now, just remember that in the time of Jesus, vineyard and vines, etc., were symbols of Israel, the people of God. That's why in Isaiah chapter 5, it will say, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the household of Israel. So in some ways, he's talking about what is happening in, the, in Israel among God's people in the kingdom of God. This man went out to in the morning to hire people, early in the morning, let's say 6 a.m. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About 9 in the morning, that's called the third hour, Okay, 6 plus 3, 9 a.m. 
he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So the HR person does it. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Full day's wage. So, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Though these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us? who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day? But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Interesting. Now, this story is not to teach you how to pay people well. <laughs> Stories of Jesus are often... Stories made to make a point. Sometimes it is exaggerated or what we call hyperbole. See, Jesus will say things like, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Impossible. But he'll use that than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He uses that to shock us to think differently. So this story is not about a very efficient manager, landowner. Because if you are very efficient, you plan. Okay, I need, how many people do I need? You go and employ that many people. You don't go after three hours and again employ some more people and again go at 12 and again go at three and again go at five. Obviously, that's not the point. Then what is it about? This landowner is not an efficient employer. He's a compassionate man. That's the story. Not about efficiency, how to run your company well. You see, the normal wage for a day wage for a laborer was denarius. And with that... If the person got that, he would be able to go and buy something so that his family will have some basic food for that day. That's it. Now, many of us don't come from that world of day laborers. But you know, if you live in Bangalore, you see day laborers all the time around us. They are there. Most of them are from outside of the city. Sometimes wearing that yellow hat. Standing in, sometimes taken in you know, vehicles in big groups. 
and like in the time of Jesus, day laborers were exploited. Like, they, like that time, even now, they are exploited. They build the houses we live in, they can never dream of living in our houses. That's the hard world. Life is not fair. Life is very unfair. But the master said, hey, what's your problem? Friend, he uses the word friend. In the gospel of Matthew, the word friend is used very differently. Problem, friend. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Yes or no? Tomorrow you want to take your money and throw it into the river, you're welcome to do that. It's your choice. I cannot stop you. I may try. And what he's saying is, you want me to be fair, right? Mm -mm. I am not unfair. Did I say I'll give you one denarius? Did you get it? I'm not unfair. But don't ask me to be fair. Don't ask me to be fair according to your idea of fairness. Because my idea of what is fair is amazing grace. That's my idea of fairness. Now, did you read about the next verse, what does it say? Are you, the English translation mind says, envious because I am generous. In case some of you have some other translations, you may have a word which says, do you have an evil eye? You have that? What does it say? Interesting. Poneros ophthalmos. Ophthalmos, ophthalmology, eye. Is your eye evil because I am Agathos, good, generous. Now, what is this eye evil? How's your eyes? I'm wearing specs especially to look at you. How's your eye? Is it evil or good? Now, obviously, this is not a metaphor we use. They don't teach that in a, uh, if you're training to be an ophthalmologist. Then what is this eye? Oh, fortunately, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, quickly, there is a passage that will help us to understand about the eye. How eye is being used by Jesus. Okay. Matthew 6.22. The eye is the lamp of the body. How many of you knew that? Your eye is the lamp of your body. <laughs> Light coming out of your eyes. Anyway, this is a metaphor. Okay. If your eyes are healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. See that metaphor? It's a very ancient metaphor. So you need to get into that world and try to figure out what does it mean. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within your you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, did you understand? What does that mean? Well, there's a basic principle of interpretation. Not just your Bible, anything. Including when our husbands and wives talk to us. Or friends speak in the family. That is, please listen in context. My wife may say something, I don't hear all of it and I misunderstand. Correct? So, simple. After this, you'll get it. Let's read from 6.19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, meaning God, in, with God, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So it's connected to, let's read verse 24 also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So it's all about money. If our perspective about money is right, is what Matthew 6 is talking about, then our whole life is full of light. What should be our perspective to life? God is not fair. God is gracious. That's the good news. I know I, if you go and tell somebody God is not fair, they'll be upset. I have been teasing my mother-in-law every now and then. I'm going to preach. Mama, I'm going to preach God is not fair. No, no, how can you say that? <laughs> She's very defense. You want to defend God? Obviously, I'm playing around with your, with your, our thinking. God is not fair. He is good. Very often after dawn moan, we say, God is good. And then our people, what do they say? All the time. Then worship leader says, all the time. Yeah. 50 years ago, you would not have said that. But dawn moan has taught us to say that. But when you say that God is good, think of this parable. Which means God is not into the fairness business. Because God is into grace. He's in compassion. God is compassionate. He's not. So when you say God is good, means he's compassionate. He's generous. That is the God we have worshipped today. And that's what Jesus revealed to us. A compassionate father. Unfortunately, we God's people sometimes have a calculative bent of mind. We have a problem actually with a God who lavishes his love on the undeserving. God's people have a problem with God. And that is, though we say amazing grace, we want it for ourselves. Not for others. We want some others to have that very special place in a place we call hell. God's people have a problem with Jesus. Let me show you one story where you can see this out in a big measure, clear measure. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is when Jesus goes to his own hometown and he opens the scripture. Obviously, which means that Jesus was used to going to his synagogue and reading scripture. So it was not nothing new. But the way he opened scripture, he Luke chapter 4, he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read that beautiful passage from Isaiah and then he said this has been fulfilled. Oh, verse 22, Luke 4, 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Oh, isn't this Joseph's son? Everybody sucks. Hey, isn't he from our village? Oh, wow. They're so happy. Just wait a few minutes. 
Jesus is going to continue and say something more. In verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. There were many widows, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. God did not send his chosen prophet to any of the widows in Israel, but to a pagan widow who doesn't know the God of Israel. And Sidon, they are not our friends. They are our enemies. Next story. Yet, Elijah was not. Okay, verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Hello? There are so many lepers in Israel, none of them, Elijah did not heal any of them. But who does he heal? Naaman, who's Naaman? Commander of the army of Syria. And who's Syria? Their enemies. Now that's a story in your scriptures. What Jesus is saying. Why does Jesus have to say this? You know, couldn't he have left it at that? Everybody was happy. You know, he would have walked out and everybody would have patted him on the back. He had to tell them that I am revealing the kingdom and I am revealing a God who is like this. Nothing new. I am showing you what is there in your own, in your own scriptures. But what is this? I don't want a God who loves my enemies. I want my enemies to be destroyed. But God must love me. What was the response when he told these stories? He probably told these stories with some, some more explanation, not just one line, you know. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through. You see, God's people have a problem with God. We talk about, we sing about amazing grace, but it is grace only for me. Others don't deserve grace. They should be punished, destroyed. That's the people sitting in the synagogue. I mean, these are not ordinary people. They are religious people. They are the ones who read scripture. Right? They know the scriptures. The God we worship loves enemies. His enemies. That's why God says, you love your enemies. God cannot ask me to do what he does not do himself. And... Paul will remind us in Romans 5 verse 10, while we were yet enemies, enemies, not just sinners, we were enemies. He says sinners earlier, but he says we were enemies of God. God loves us when we are enemies and then we change. He doesn't wait till we stop being enemies. So who is this God we have worshipped today? He's not fair. Quickly, I'll land the plane. We were flying high, we need to land and then come to the terminal and go home, take the taxi and go home. 
one of the finest passages in the Old Testament, my favorite, which reveals to us the nature of God, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. You know, when we talk about God, we can make a lot of blunders. When we try to talk about somebody else, we can misunderstand because we don't know enough about that other person. We can sometimes look at a person, make so many judgments, and later on when we hear some things about a person, we'll say, oh my goodness, I made such a blunder. I thought this person was like this, but they are not like that. Has that happened to you? It has happened to me. We have sometimes decided how somebody is just by looking at them or just by something we saw. But the best thing is to know about God is when God introduces himself. In Exodus 34, 6, God introduces himself. This is God's visiting card, if you want to say. This is one of his visiting cards in the Old Testament. And he passed in front of Moses and God proclaimed. What does he say? The Lord, the Lord. If you have capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, that means as the word. We Christians use the word Yahweh. But actually, there are four letters. Yod, He, Wow, He. Many Jews today do not pronounce that. They don't pronounce the name. They will say Adonai. Or they will say Hashem. Hashem means the name. Just like in many of our families, in India and outside, many wives will not call the, their husband by name. Sunteho! <laughs> you know? Or Munni ke papa. Out of respect, they will not pronounce the name. The Lord, the Lord. What's the first thing about him? How does he introduce himself? Compassionate. And gracious. And slow to anger. You know, it's very interesting, this phrase, slow to anger in the, in the Hebrew. Actually, it means having a long nose. Okay. Compare that, we use the word long fuse, short fuse. So, God doesn't get angry so fast. I mean, slow to anger like all of us. Right? Long nose. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving. Forgiving what? Wickedness. So God loves to forgive wicked people. Rebellion. God loves to forgive rebellion, rebellious people. And sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What does that mean? That means his love and forgiveness is a just forgiveness. His mercy is a holy mercy. There will be justice also. But God is compassionate. The first word there, I just wanted to take that one word and leave you with that, is the word compassionate. Rakum. That's the word there. Rakamim is compassion. And it's connected to the word rahem. In Urdu you have the word rahem. Mercy. And you know what that is? It is connected to the womb. God is the one who has a womb. Yeah? 
Many times in the Old Testament, God is spoken of as one who has compassion. And compassion is always connected to wounds. The compassion of a mother. Now, Colossians 3.12, and that's the last verse I will read. The plane has landed. Colossians 3.12 God's people, you and I, who have worshipped this God, who is not fair, because he is compassionate, gracious, loving. So in chapter 3, verse 12, Colossians, Paul will say, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, fill your wardrobe with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You can read more. Take time and read some more of that. That's where the plane has to land. That's where we have to land if we say we are followers of this God. We have to clothe ourselves with what? What is the first thing here? feel with, you suffer with. Passion means suffering. That's why in mainline churches they have Passion Week meetings. Passion has to do with suffering. It's a, from the Latin it comes from the English. Suffering with people. That's what God is. His compassion. Remember the father ran, he said he had compassion. This landowner, how does he deal with God's people? With compassion. God reveals himself, I am the Will that be said about you and me? That we are compassionate. Because that's the primary thing about God. God is not fair. He's compassionate. He's gracious. That's the good news. Hallelujah. So you can actually walk out today, go back home, try to say this. It will be difficult. God is not fair. Hallelujah. Learn to say that a few times. Look in the mirror and just say, God is not fair. Hallelujah. Let's work it around. I mean, we need to have an idea, but God is not like we think about God sometimes. You know, many of us who have cars will once in a while have to go for wheel alignment. You know what that is? So that your wheels get aligned every now and then you need, otherwise your car will go off in one direction. Wheel alignment. We need to get our heads aligned, our thinking aligned according to see what God is like. Let's not live a fair life. Let us live a compassionate life. Let us live not with calculation, but with kindness. Let's not just think about achievement. Let's look at the need. How do we do that? There are a million ways you and I can be compassionate. When you pay that taxi driver, give him some extra money for a good breakfast. When you are working with those who work in your house, don't think about how much others are paying and whether you are paying a fair salary. Forget about fairness. God is not fair to us. He gives us more than we deserve. You and I can say, unlike that inspector Javier who said, the rules don't allow me to be merciful. You and I can say, no. The gospel allows me the Holy Spirit 
empowers me to be compassionate, to be not fair, but be gracious. That's our God. He's not fair, he's compassionate. Today, that's why we are here. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Can we just sing that one verse of that? Amazing grace. Let's just stand to our feet as we make that commitment. I've said a lot. Just close your eyes and just think about this. That our God is gracious, compassionate. How we parse that and how we figure that out in terms of our life situations, what has happened to us, that's another story. us through the words of our Lord Jesus through his life revealed afresh to us who you are you are gracious you are compassionate help me, help us that our wardrobe will be full of clothes of compassion grace forgiveness kindness generosity we will glorify you. Holy Spirit, empower us to not play by the rules, but live out the God life like a compassion and grace. This is our prayer, Father in heaven, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.